We all want to be free, but few of us really find it. I mean, in a time where most of the Western world has the ability to experience freedom unlike history has ever seen before, we still don't quite feel free. We still feel like we're slaves. We still feel like there's something holding us back from a life well-lived. We feel trapped by the outside world. Other people make life difficult. Systems of this world um, don't often work well. We're also trapped by what goes on inside of our hearts. We find it hard to forgive people. We find it difficult to not just care about others, but to actually work for their good, especially when it costs us something. Especially for people who we would think are different than us. It's just a hard thing to do. We might look free on the outside, but in practice, we can really act and feel like slaves. I mean, here's maybe a small example. If your phone battery is at like 5%, like, do you get anxious? <laughs> like, oh, what am I going to do with my life? I don't even know what's going to happen. I mean, that, what, what a small little thing if our battery dips just a little bit below. It, it just shows we are enslaved to so many things. Obviously, that's a small example. But what about like bigger things that give us that anxiety? Um, our relationships, our addictions, our secrets that we have, the shame that we carry with us. I mean, many of us would probably say that we aren't as free as we'd like to be. We aren't as free as we think we should be. Now, God knows this, and he wants to free us from our self-imposed slavery. So he first gives us a picture of the broken human condition. There's a lot of broken human condition going on in this chapter. We're going to get into some of that. Um, But then God tells us how we can experience freedom. And more than just freedom by itself and have that be in the story, God also gives us a higher purpose. We're, that, in fact, that we are freed for a purpose more than just freedom itself. So we'll first, uh, we'll look at this accusation, then we'll look at freedom, then we'll look at purpose. Um, so let's look at the accusation. This is God accusing his people, speaking to people whose lives are out of alignment with his own. They're supposed to be God's people, but they're not acting like it. Um, Their lives are out of alignment with how God has taught them to live, and now he's accusing them. I mean, what we see in these first verses is God is bringing all of creation to witness this accusation. So like the first verse, or the second verse, talking to the mountains, talking to the everlasting foundations, which is the earth, um, that the Lord has a case against his people. So we're all called to this kind of cosmic courtroom and the witnesses to to these accusations is is creation itself. So what's the case here? What what is God bringing against his people in this situation here in Micah? Well, there's a long list. Um, Verses 9 through 16 goes through all sorts of things. Um, The little heading I have in the NIV is Israel's guilt and punishment, and there's a whole lot of it. Uh, We're not going to go through every single one of those, um, but here's maybe a few highlights. Verse 10. He says, this is God to his people, am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, your wicked house, and the short ephah, we'll get into that in a moment, which is accursed? Basically what he's saying is people are getting rich through wrong means. And God's saying, what, should I just forget this? People are unjustly prospering over others in wrong kind of ways. Do you think I see this and I I ought to forget this? A a short ephah, what is that? Okay, an ephah was like a a unit of measurement. Um, And a short ephah basically means someone pays for this much and you give them that much. Like your unit of measurement is off. Someone paid for 100 grams, you give them 50 grams or whatever the thing might be of, of rice or whatever the thing is. So it's, it's, a, it's a dishonest business practices. And the same thing goes for, um, in verse 11, dishonest scales, a bag of false weights, those kind of things. People are dealing unjustly with others in business matters. And what this ends up becoming is more than just 
a, uh, a literal um, business practice. It ends up being like a spiritual metaphor for God's people. That they are unjustly dealing with people in all sorts of ways, selling people short. They are grinding people to poverty, and poverty in all kinds of things, from material goods to spiritual lives. So God here, he's talking to the powerful, the rich, the political elite, the religious elite. And here, what we find out is, in verse 12, rich people are violent. The inhabitants are liars. And they use words, not for honesty, not for others' gain, not for righteousness, but for deceit. Intentionally deceiving others for someone else's, for your own gain. They're pragmatists using this world for their own ends. The rich people are violent, the people are liars, they use words not for honesty and justice, but for deceit. They're doing all they can to get for themselves what they want to get. Now, we might think maybe we're a little bit better off than the people accused you. Like, man, last time I had an ephah, I think it was pretty much what an ephah ought to weigh. It wasn't really a short ephah. Last time I had a, a bag of weights, um, they weren't false weights, actually. They were, they were pretty legit. Like, so obviously, we're not dealing with, uh, with ephahs here. But the question here is, maybe not the question, uh, the reality is that we have all dealt wrongfully with others. We've all used our words in ways to gain for ourselves so that others won't get what they ought to be due. So we're going to go through, even as we go through more of the list here of what's going on in Micah's time and Israel's time, like millennia ago, um, you might think, ah, you know, they're pretty bad, but I'm a little bit better than that. You know, maybe we are a little bit better, a little bit, but only really in small ways and probably not nearly as much as we think we are. Um, there's a, an author, Nobel Prize winner, Russian um, writer named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I believe how you pronounce it, has this amazing quote that I've used before. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it was necessarily only to separate them from the rest of us and to destroy them, if only that was the case. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That dividing line is found in all of us. We all have that deceit in us. We all have those lying practices in us. We all are not completely won over to the idea of justice for others. So what's the result here? People who are living in justice, well, God doesn't like injustice to continue on because God is just. He wants to see all the wrong things be made right. He doesn't like people not dealing in mercy. He doesn't like people using others, and he most definitely doesn't like his people living for themselves instead of him. So the Lord has begun to destroy his people. He says in verse 13, I have begun to destroy you. Verse 14 talks about this is what life is going to look like if you continue down this wrong road that doesn't lead to me, if you continue down the road that leads to doing whatever you want to do for yourselves. It says, you will eat but not be satisfied. You will live empty, dissatisfied lives. Your stomach will still be empty. You'll store up. You'll get money. Yeah, you'll store up and, but save nothing. You'll end up with less because what you save, I will give to the sword. God is going to take You'll plant, but not harvest. You'll do all the work, but not actually get any of the fruit. You'll press olives, but not use the oil. I mean, pressing olives is like a big, laborious process. You end up all sweaty and gross, and you aren't even going to eat the drink or however you use the olive oil. You'll crush grapes, but you won't drink the wine. They'll be frustrated planting, but not harvesting, doing all the work without the payoff. And then um, there's this kind of... Uh, 
cryptic thing here. Who's uh, in verse 16? The statutes of Omri, the practices of Ahab. Who, who are those guys? What's the deal with that? Well, we don't know probably. Well, some of you might. But many of us, um, Omri and Ahab may not be uh, in our immediate um, background, in our immediate kind of cultural imagination. These two guys were two kings of Israel. Omri was king first, and then his son Ahab was king. Um, they both led people, God's people, to trust in things other than God. So Omri, this is how he gets to be uh, remembered in the Bible. Omri, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. Yikes. This is how we're talking about Omri, you know, 2,000 plus years later. So what happened with Ahab, his son? Okay, so Ahab comes next. Ahab did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. So Ahab was like, I'll do you one better, Dad. So it's not great. That's not how you want to be remembered in the Bible, these words that we're even talking about today. And, but those are the roots, those are the paths that God's people are following. So God is saying, okay, you're not worshiping me. You can get all the benefits from worshiping not me. All the not me's out there. There are lots of not me's, not God's out there. You can get all those benefits. You know what you're going to get? You're going to get empty, dissatisfied lives. You're going to get frustration. You'll, you'll be fruitless. Eventually, ruin and shame will come to you. You can do that if you want. This is what it looks like. And the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So all of humanity stands accused under God, and rightfully so, if we're at least 1% honest with ourselves. And what the Lord really is accusing his people of <coughs> is pragmatism. Pragmatism is doing what works for you in the moment. Never mind the ethics, never mind the long-term implications, it's about doing what works in the moment, whatever is going to get you what you want. Now, Israel were pragmatists. They stole from people to get what they want. They shorted them when they could. They, um, they basically said that you have to lie to get ahead. You have to worship the gods of the day instead of the Lord. And all of this adds up to living for yourself in the moment. Now, in that light, I think we can see that though thousands of years have passed between us and God's people, or Israel's time here, we're still very much the same humans because we still do pretty much the same thing. It may look different than a short ephah. It may look different than observing the statutes of Omri, but basically we kind of live really similar pragmatist kind of lives. We have even more freedom to live the way that God is accusing his people here now, to do what feels good. Just like in Israel's time, though, our pragmatism leads to emptiness. We end up spiritually starved. And we are spiritually starved. We try and fill our stomachs with the things of this world, and then we wonder why we feel not satisfied. We eat and eat and eat and are still not satisfied. Because life without the Lord is just not satisfying. A life out of alignment with God is so much easier, requires so much less of you. It allows you to stay the same. It allows you to do whatever you want when you want. It is a much easier life. It allows you to follow the gods of the day. Like consumerism, just buy more stuff, make yourself feel happy. Or moralism, if you do enough good, enough good is going to come to you, and then if you're like 51% good, then you feel good about yourself. The thing is we completely overestimate the good we do and completely underestimate all the bad we do. That's a whole other thing. But a life in alignment with God is much more difficult than living out of alignment with Him. It does require more of us. It welcomes everyone but it also grows everyone, and growing is, is not fun. No one signs up for that, or they might, but they don't like it. 
This also means we can't always do whatever we think is best in the moment because we get to be part of something bigger. That means it changes our decisions, it changes our actions, it ought to change our lives. The benefit of that is we get to be freed from the gods of the day. We get to be freed of the consumerism that will never let up. In a place like South Manchester, will never, that consumerism God will never let up. That is a local deity that people bow down to. We bow down to him as well. But we can be freed from that. The moralism that will eat away at your soul because the burden of having to actually be a good person is impossible to bear. There's no way you can be good enough. So it's a more satisfying life being able to live life with God and be freed from the other gods that we tend to bow down towards. Now here's the thing though, because no one signs up for an empty life. No one's like, yeah, but I kind of want an empty life. Can you, is that an option around here? No one, no one signs up for that. But without God directing us, because of that good and evil in our hearts, we can't help but drift towards those empty kind of lives. We can't help but take paths that would lead us to emptiness. We need the Lord to be constantly directing our lives, constantly telling us, no, not there, right here. Just no, you're a few steps off, just take a step here. We need him to constantly be directing us because we're professionals when it comes to ruining them. We're really good at it. It doesn't take much. I mean, just think of the people hearing this. This is, uh, I mean, Micah was, was a preacher, and this is like a, a collection of his sermons to God's people. Just think of God's people hearing this for the first time coming from Micah's mouth. Like the Lord speaking through Micah saying, I accuse you and all of creation will be my witness. What, what a burden to bear. What a heavy burden to have to be under. That would be pretty scary, I think. God, the creator of the universe, has called us to court and we stand there accused. Now, if the Lord is bringing an accusation against us, how could we possibly respond? Who are we? But the reason why God brings this up isn't to place an impossible burden on us, full stop. It's um, a way of speaking in the Bible that theologians uh, call complaint speech. So kind of like moaning. (laughs) But it's uh, God complaining about something so that a relationship will be restored. So the reason why he's bringing up all these problems isn't just to say, and see, that's why you're horrible. I'll see you later. It's basically say, this is where you messed up, but I don't want that to be the case. I want you to change so we can be back in relationship together. The whole point is to reestablish a relationship because the relationship here between God's people and God is broken because God's people are choosing to do all sorts of other things other than be with God. And the only one who can relieve this burden is the one who brought it the Lord himself. Now, because God is just, he cares about justice. He's always about setting the wrong things right. So he accuses the guilty because that's what it means to be just. But he does more than that because to the empty and to the guilty, he calls himself the redeemer. He calls himself a redeemer. He gives us freedom because God knows we are unable to live lives in alignment with him by ourselves. And so he works to make our life align with his. Instead of us having to figure it out, it's God coming down to us and sorting us out. So some people think that life with God is a burden. And this has been going on for years and years and years. Look at verse three. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? And then he's like, well, let me tell you what this quote unquote burden is. Verse four, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. You were in chains, and I freed you. God also like, lists a bunch of other things here uh, of how he led his people in verses 5 
and further on. We don't have time to get into all those stories. But I do want to spend time looking at this overarching theme that verse 4 talks about. The Lord redeemed his people from slavery. Now, this is such a huge verse, and it's important to God himself because he uses this all the time to define himself. God all the time describes himself as the God, the one who brought you out of Egypt, the Lord, the one who redeemed you from slavery, um, even before the Ten Commandments. So often we think the Ten Commandments is just a, a set of rules. Uh, and in some ways, because like, it kind of is, but if you read the Ten Commandments, the way it starts, it says, I am the Lord, the Lord who redeemed you from Egypt or from your slavery. And then he gives Ten Commandments and then finishes up with other things. Basically, like, I have given you freedom. Here's what it looks like to live in that freedom I've given you. So it's all about who God has made us to be first. It's such a, a massive verse. It's all over the Bible. So let's spend a little time here in, in verse 4. So Egypt, so he brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Egypt is the land of slavery. In fact, if we were to like literally translate some of these words, land of slavery, could basically be like the slave house. I redeemed you from the slave house. So God's people are basically trafficked people by themselves. They were human trafficked. How do you think um, the Egyptians built their amazing pyramids? You know, by people who didn't have any freedom, by people who were used for work. How does any civilization build amazing works? It's always on the backs of slaves. The US, the UK, like it's just, how did the White House get built? Slavery. How did the UK like get all that money off all the colonialism? Slavery. It's the same. Humans haven't changed very much in all these years. So God's people are people who've experienced slavery, people who, apart from God's work, would still be in slavery. But before his people could do anything good, before his people could prove themselves to be 51% good or whatever it is, that kind of thing we have in our heads, God brought them out of the slave house. God bought them out of the slave house. I mean, how could they do anything good? They were in chains. They couldn't do anything but be slaves. And yet God pursued his people. And there's an important word here um, in verse 4, which is redeemed. To redeem a slave means to buy their freedom. Literally, to buy their freedom is what it means. God bought the freedom for his people. He removed them from everything that suppressed who they really were, took them out of that place that held them back. They're not in Egypt anymore. They're in their own place, God's place. And this is the way that God chooses to describe himself, the one who bought our freedom, the one who saw people stuck in their slavery, stuck in all the things that hold us back from being humans fully alive and giving us a new life, redeeming us. And this is true of anyone who calls themselves God's people. We know what it's like to be held back, and we know what it's like to have freedom. For those here who follow Jesus, we were once held back by fear, by shame, by guilt, by all the forces that are beyond our control. More than that, the Lord's heavy accusation was across your back. But the Lord has redeemed you. He has freed you from all of that. You're free from those burdens. Now, if that's true, why is it so difficult still? Because we, we, we still feel shame. We still feel guilt. We still feel like we're just a product of forces beyond our control. Well, as God's people were redeemed from a place of slavery, they didn't automatically jump right to the promised land. They had wilderness wanderings for 40 years, a long time. Life in the wilderness is difficult. There are no promises of escapism. There's no promises of perfection. But what we get as we're freed is to be orientated towards something better than what we were before. Before, we were orientated towards slavery, towards chains, towards not being in control of anything ourselves, and now, being freed, though we still experience some of those things and we're still tempted to go back to those things, we have a different orientation in the world, and therefore we live different ways. 
we're freed and our orientation isn't towards Egypt, it's to the promised land, towards God's presence. Not to chains, but to God's presence. So all our stories are different. We all have different things, different ups and downs. We all have different stories to tell, but the overarching theme in all of our lives are very similar in that all of us have been slaves redeemed by the Lord. Now, nobody wants to stay stuck in slavery. So how can we get out? How does that work? What's, what's, what's going to do it? Well, no amount of doing good things will stop us from being slaves. You see, you feel, you see how, that ridiculous, how ridiculous that sounds? For someone who is not in chains or is in chains, thinking that if you just do good enough things, enough of those things, all of a sudden, like, the chains will fall off? That doesn't make any sense. We're in chains. <laughs> we need someone to come and to break us free. And that's just what the Lord does. So if you follow Jesus, this is who you are. Before you're a doctor, before you're a mother, before you're a friend or a partner or whatever else, you are a former slave redeemed by God. It's who you are. Now, if you don't follow Jesus yet, imagine what your life could be like if it wasn't held back by those chains of, of selfishness, of meaning well but not quite really attaining where you want to be, of uh, making a mess of things that people just have to always clean up. The shame, the guilt, everything that holds us back from being humans fully alive, the Lord offers a life of freedom unlike anything else out there. So we have that freedom, but that's not where the story ends because the freedom is used for something beyond itself. There's a purpose in our freedom. So it's not just freedom full stop. There it is. There's a purpose. Um, so let's look a bit at what this new life is like. So God's redeemed us, given us freedom, but that's not the end of the story. He gives us a purpose. We're obsessed with freedom during our time. Like there's nothing that we probably think about and think is more important in our lives than freedom. Um, but then we're also listless. I think the reason why we're listless is we have all this freedom. It's like loads and loads of freedom, but we just don't know what to use it for. It just kind of keeps escaping us, and we, we get more of it, and we're like, well, I don't even know what to use all this freedom for. What, what, what's it for? What's the point of it all? So before we get to the purpose, uh, Micah brings up the backwards ways that people who have experienced freedom seek to run back to slavery. The Lord is not a burden. He relieves burdens. He is not a burden. And yet, as we're redeemed from those burdens, we end up going back to them. We're freed slaves who, instead of embracing our freedom, often choose to go back to our jail cells. That doesn't make any sense, but something that we do over and over and over again. This is in Micah 6, uh, verses 6 and 7. God says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? How are we going to worship this God who has redeemed us? That's the question that's being asked here. What does this life of freedom look like? How do we exercise that freedom? What's the largest purpose? Is it sacrifices? Is it being really moralistic? Is it being really religious? Is it giving large gifts? The firstborn um, that comes up there, basically Mike is saying, should I kill my firstborn son? The firstborn son was the most precious thing to someone living then because it represented current provision because that person could work, especially it's an agricultural kind of based society, as well as a future legacy because your name would live on. To sacrifice a firstborn is to give up on that hope to almost be purposeless, let alone how horrible it is for the firstborn himself who gets sacrificed. That's a bad thing for that guy too, isn't it? 
But this is how gods of the day would, they would require the sacrifice of the of firstborn or their, son, or their sons or their daughters to appease them. And so Micah's like, well, how do I worship this God? Do I, do I worship in this religious way that the world is teaching me? Do I worship in, in this kind of moralistic religious way that I think it means to be a good person? Does God require us to sacrifice our children to save ourselves? Does he require us to put a burden on ourselves so heavy that we can barely handle it? Is that what a life of freedom looks like? God has redeemed us from Egypt. Why are we looking to go back to Egypt? Why are we so prone to go back to slavery? We've been redeemed from a burden, the burden of slavery, of death itself. Our new purpose isn't another different kind of burden. Our new purpose isn't another new different kind of burden. Often people think that becoming a Christian means you have to be a good person, you have to do all the religious stuff, and basically what that means is you sign up to miss out on living a full life, whereas really it's the complete opposite. Our purpose is to be humans fully alive, and that's what God is about. That's what God wants to, to, to bring out of our lives. And God tells us what it looks like. The, this is the highest point of this entire book. All the sermons that we have had and will have, um, the most important verse is Micah 6.8. So we come as free people. What does it mean to live as free people? Verse 8 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Yes, this is it. I want to know. What is it? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Our purpose is to embrace our freedom in the Lord. And that means justice, mercy, humbly walking with him. So briefly, we're just going to hit on um, those three points here. What does act justly mean? Well, it means because it's, it's coming from the heart of God, is to seek to put wrong things right. Seeking others' interests above our own, own often at the cost of, our, of ourselves. It's being okay with being put out if it means other people get helped. So God saw us in a horrible position, and in his justice, he freed us. Because we've been redeemed by God, we now have to emulate his heart in our lives. And living that way is the best thing for us. Let's look at um, love mercy. What does love mercy mean? Well, um, justice is maybe might be a bit easier for us to get than mercy because mercy means forgiveness. That's a much harder thing to live out. It's a much harder thing to walk through. When someone wrongs you, not trying to get back at them, and doing more than just biting your lip and saying, I'm fine, as you grit your teeth and hold your hands together, to actually be okay in your heart with it. When we're redeemed by God, he forgave us of so much more than what anyone has ever done or could ever do against us. And he continues to forgive us when we continually mess up. So because we've been redeemed by God, we get to now emulate his heart in our lives. So we don't just seek justice. We don't just seek mercy. We do both. And both of these are orientated towards others. Interesting that the way to live this free life, this life that God wants us to live, two-thirds of the purpose is focused towards other human beings. And living this way is the complete opposite of the pragmatism we talked about earlier that we're just kind of prone to live in. This is looking after others. I mean, God cares very much about the relationships we have with each other in the church, outside the church, in our neighborhood, in our city, in our family. And that's what God is about. Lastly, to walk humbly with your God. As former slaves, we are called to humility with our Redeemer. When we forget that we were slaves, we get prideful. We think, oh, I deserve something. When people treat us like servants or slaves, we kind of get a bit bent out of shape and we forget that's actually who we are. 
We have all come from the same place. We've all come from the house of slavery. That means we're all the same before God. We were formerly enslaved to all sorts of things that held us back, putting our hope in sex, in relationships, in alcohol, putting our hope in our own power, in greed, in lying to get what we want, contorting all the parts of this world for our own, even God himself contorting him in some ways for our own gain, as if that's possible. And that's what we used to be. But now we get to live out what 1 Corinthians six eleven says. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. That leads to humbly walking with God. Walking with God instead of walking with everything else that this world offers. And we know we're offered loads of things. Walking with God means listening to, listening to him speak through his word, through reading it for ourselves and reading it with other people. It means speaking back to him in prayer. I mean, if we don't do this, we are falling short of our purpose as human beings. And we can't help but go back to slavery. If we aren't doing those things, there should be no expectation other than going back to slavery. So we should expect a life of slavery if we're not humbly walking with our God. Now, Jesus in the New Testament tells us this in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you're going to find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. If we feel like we're having heavy burdens, we may not actually be serving God. The reason the burden is light, the reason God doesn't require us to sacrifice our firstborn is because Jesus was that sacrifice. Redeem means to buy back. So the price of our freedom was the life of, our, of the Son. The reason we aren't slaves because Jesus already gave his life for us. On the cross, he died and he took all those chains that we are so prone to go back to. He took all of them with him and he put them to death. Everything that holds us back from being put to death and death itself has been put to death. And Jesus rose again three days later. In doing so, he gives us a new freedom through the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Freedom with a purpose to live lives of justice and mercy as we walk humbly with the Lord. So Jesus' new life can be our life. Our God does not accuse us now. He's not there accusing us. not his role now because we are his children. He's an agent for our freedom. He's an agent for our flourishing. He wants the best for us, and he wants to give it to us. The question is, will we take it, or will we go back to the life that we know, back to the life of slavery? If God has redeemed you, do you still feel it to a burden? God's purpose is a new life. If you haven't experienced the full purpose and freedom given by God, what's holding you back? Or maybe you've experienced it before, but you feel held back in the past. What is it that's holding you back? There's so much life to be lived. We don't want anyone missing out. In this chapter of Micah, we're told to remember God's freeing power in our lives. As God says, remember, I brought you out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. And that's what this table is all about. It's about remembering the lengths that Jesus went to so that you might be redeemed. Not that you can pay it back with a good life, but that so you can live in the freedom that Jesus gives us. We're given freedom. To use that freedom to live a life of purpose, working for justice, working for mercy, walking humbly with God. So this bread represents Jesus' body that was broken as he was being given up, the firstborn son, for us. And this juice and wine represents Jesus' blood that was poured out for us, buying us from the house of slavery buying for us our new life. 
sacrificed for us so that we no longer have to sacrifice ourselves to slavery. So we're free. We should remember that. In a moment, we're going to sing. Um, and as we sing, take a piece of bread, we dip it in there. Um, this is something that people who follow Jesus do because it's a, it's a symbol, a, a remembering of all that Jesus has done for us. It's a re-embracing of our freedom. So as we come up here, let's think about the, um, the joy that we ought to have by giving a new freedom in Jesus. Uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus, follower of Jesus yet, we ask for you not to take it, um, but maybe um, you can make this step, make, make it your first step to follow Jesus. Or if not, then think about what life could look like if you were. All of humanity stands accused under God. That's what we hear, kind of the, the heavy burden of Micah 6, and rightfully so. But God is more than an accuser. He's a redeemer, and he gives us freedom. This new life of freedom also comes with a purpose, one that's larger than we can even imagine or craft for ourselves as we seek to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. Let me pray.